Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are our top stories. The U.S. unveils plans to combat a string of attacks on international shipping in the waters near Yemen. This after Houthi terrorists struck again in the Red Sea on two ships at the same time. We look at Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's message on his trip to Israel and the Middle East. And we ask an IDF spokesman about a massive Hamas tunnel found near Israel's border and what's next in the war. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators flood New York's streets at one point, getting into a shouting match with actor Alec Baldwin, asking him if he condemns Israel. Six Nevada Republicans arraigned for casting alternate votes for former President Trump in the 2020 elections. More on their not guilty pleas and why former Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro gained immunity from state prosecution. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signs a new bill to stem the flow of illegal immigrants into the state as the GOP pushes for funding for the border. Today is the fourth and final day of the conservative America Fest conference in Phoenix. We hear from some young people about what drove them to attend and take a look at some highlights. A volcano eruption in Iceland spews lava and smoke through the region after weeks of intense seismic activity. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning, everyone. Today is Tuesday, December 19th. And yeah, yesterday was quite the big um, pro-Palestine rally. They even basically shut down Penn Station. Oh, yeah. And I see the graffiti on the sidewalks and walking in calling for a resurgence of this intifada. Right. We will have that later on. But in today's top news, the U.S. military says Houthi terrorists attacked two ships at the same time in the Red Sea yesterday. One of the attacks was on a commercial oil tanker. U.S. Central Command says it was targeted by a one-way attack drone and an anti-ship ballistic missile launched from Yemen. The other commercial vessel, a bulk cargo ship, reported an explosion in the water nearby. No injuries were reported. Secretary of State Antony Blinken condemned the attacks in a call with Saudi Arabia's foreign minister yesterday. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin also unveiled a new U.S.-led coalition yesterday. The naval operation aims to counter the growing threats in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Canada, the U.K., Italy and France are among the nations joining the security initiative. Austin says the international challenge demands collective action. The defense secretary says some countries will conduct joint patrols and others will provide intelligence support in the region. Oil rose nearly 2% yesterday. Supply costs and delays to the region's maritime trade are rattling investors. Major oil and shipping firms are reacting to the recent attacks in the international trade corridor by pausing or avoiding the route. We're continuing with updates from Israel's war against Hamas. The IDF just uncovered the largest Hamas tunnel so far in Gaza. That is just around 1,000 feet away from the border of Israel's Kibbutz Eres. We want to bring in Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner for more. He's a spokesperson for the IDF. Welcome back, Lieutenant Colonel. It's good to see you this morning, as always. So you discovered, as I said, the largest Hamas tunnel yet. What have you learned? Uh, about what exactly was it used for and just how significant has it been for Hamas's operations? 
Good morning, Evelyn. Indeed, it is a massive uh, tunnel network, over four kilometers long, wide enough for a car um, and like 50 meters deep. Um, it goes to show the extent of Hamas's intention to conduct their activities, their terrorist activities from the Gaza Strip in and around the, the border area in order to conduct attacks, in order to launch attacks as they did on the 7th of October. Uh, while I can't confirm that this, that, that this was the case at this stage, uh, we have to work under the assumption that it is exactly that. And what I can say is that we know of at least two other uh, tunnel systems like this. We intend on exposing them, and, and it's part of our operation to dismantle and destroy Hamas, peel back level by level, stage by stage, tunnel by tunnel, uh, the mechanism that Hamas has built. Um, what it actually goes to show, Evelyn, is the extent uh, of their uh, activities, of their intentions, the, 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 the amount of energy and money just goes to show that this is the most expensive, expansive construction project ever to exist in the Gaza Strip, not for the benefit of the people of Gaza, but uh, the detriment of the people of Gaza only to serve terrorism. So when you say there's two more, it's, it's comparable size of how it's equipped I would say at least two more, and we will continue to our, our, our operations uh, to reveal Hamas's uh, uh, the extent of their uh, networks of terror tunnels, uh, the the com command and communications capabilities, uh, their control capabilities, where they're hiding. You know, we understand that they are from what the hostages that have been released have, are telling us, where they are being held uh, under underground in hospitals. This is how Hamas have operated throughout this war. Uh, they prepared these tunnels over the last 16 years precisely for this, um, this scenario. So it's going to take time, but we are determined to change the paradigm once and for all to make sure that right. Hamas can never wield this power of death above us. And I also want to move on to uh, another topic. I also want to address the three hostages that were killed, although they were waving a white flag, we've learned. so. And then there were two women in a Christian church as well. Of course, that all comes after President Biden criticized your operations as indiscriminate bombing. They, he used that, those words. So do you think that maybe now is the time for you to stop and rethink uh, some of that strategy that you've been applying? Evelyn, the operations on the ground and the battles that are, ongo are ongoing, even as we speak this morning, um, are extensive, are in the conditions. And I would say in the battleground that Hamas chose, the death of three hostages is a tragedy and it is painful for everybody in Israeli society. Um, the IDF came forward and after our investigation, our inquiry, we found that the IDF, the forces on the ground, opened fire in contravention to our our. Uh, our procedures, uh, and this is indeed a tragedy. Uh, we are nevertheless faced with a, a terrorist organization that has weaponized the urban area, that has weaponized hidden in hospitals, utilizing the um, uh, civilian arena to try and prevent us from operating. Uh, well, so what... Which is a national military. So what will the repercussions be of that? Or in general, what will be the measures taken about the failure to correctly identify civilians and hostages from Hamas? Um, so what we've done, and first of all, I think our chief of staff, the Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi, went into the field. He was there, spoke to soldiers, spoke to the forces on the ground, 
and, and clarified what is our expectations, what is the expectation. Uh, and what he said was a very, very clear message uh, to the forces. Um, take a second, use your mind. Um, we understand that the battlefield is extremely full of tensions and stress. Uh, but if you use your mind, we will achieve greater goals. We will defeat the enemy. Uh, uh, and we have to be very, very cautious operating in the, in the civilian arena. Uh, this is what we've been trying to do since the outset of this war, a war that Israel did not ask for. We were surprised by it. Uh, we have no choice but to win. Uh, we will go and continue to operate. And we have lessons learned from this tragedy uh, and distributing those and disseminating those within the forces in order to improve our forces, our, our operational capabilities on the ground, but also to maintain our uh, understanding that there is no alternative at this time, Evan. Mm. And uh, since we have time for one last question, so Israel's defense minister was talking about slow, gradually moving to a next phase soon. Uh, is that something you're currently preparing for? Of course, the IDF understands that the level of intensity that is conducting our operations uh, will go down as we move forward and, and close in on Hamas and their leadership, as we dismantle and destroy their battalions across the Gaza Strip. And we have, uh, and we continue this morning, the operations in Sajaya in the northern Gaza Strip, in Jabalia, in Khan Yunus in the south. Um, we are destroying and dismantling the battalions. And as their forces are depleted and defeated on the battleground, thus the level of intensity of the conflict will indeed go down and we will prepare and we are preparing for the next stages in order to be, be uh, able to continue our mission on one hand, but also to maintain and contain a level of pressure on Hamas to bring home the hostages, every last one of them, and to dismantle the organization that brought this war on all of us. So just quickly, is there any timeline that you're already able to put on this and you could share? I, I, it's not a timeline that I would identify specifically, of course, it depends on the progress on the battleground. Um, that is what is dictating the level of intensity, where there is more objection, more terrorists, more where they're deeply, deeper embedded in the uh, tunnel system, then it creates a bigger challenge. Of course, that is met by the force of the IDF. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. I appreciate your time as always. Good day. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visits Israel for the second time since the war began. This comes as the U.S., Israel and Qatar negotiate a potential hostage deal. During his meeting with Israeli leaders on Monday, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin repeated that U.S. commitment to Israel was unwavering. He said the U.S. will continue to provide military equipment, help Israel free hostages, and also get humanitarian aid into Gaza. Hamas should never again be able to project terror from Gaza into the sovereign state of Israel. And we will continue to work together for a safer, more secure future for Israel and a brighter future for the Palestinians. Austin and Israeli officials discussed a post-war plan for Gaza. They also addressed intensifying attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels on international shipping in the Red Sea. Austin says he is convening a meeting on Tuesday with his counterparts in the Middle East and beyond to respond to the issue. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu applauded the move. This is a battle against the Iranian axis, the Iranian axis of terror, which is now threatening to close the maritime strait of Bab el-Mandeb. This threatens the freedom of navigation of the entire world. 
I appreciate the fact that you are taking action to uh, open that strait. On the same day, CIA Director William Burns met with the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency and Qatar's prime minister for hostage talks in Warsaw, Poland. The Biden administration said they are hoping the talks will lead to another hostage and ceasefire deal. I know uh, uh, Brett McGurk and, and David Satterfield continue to work this almost by the hour to see if we can't get another pause in place and another hostage deal executed. Uh, but as I said at the at the top here, of the gaggle, I, I can't report to you a, a date certain uh, or, or or tell you in good faith uh, that there is an, another deal that's imminent. Hamas said they are open to talks, but there will be no negotiations on hostage deals until Israel ends its war in Gaza. The terrorist group on Monday released a video of three elderly Israeli hostages. In it, they pleaded with the Israeli government for their release. The Israeli military responded. The video Hamas released in the past hour is an evil terror video. It demonstrates Hamas' brutality toward elderly civilians who are innocent and in need of medical attention. As Yemen's Houthi rebels intensify their attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea, more companies are taking action. Oil giant BP said Monday it's suspending all ship traffic through the Red Sea. Major shipping firms Maersk, Habag Lloyd and CMA CGM Group have already done the same. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. At least two people were arrested during a pro-Palestinian demonstration in Midtown Manhattan Monday. The march caused major disruptions during rush hour. Many protesters had signs with slogans like support Palestinian resistance and queers for liberated Palestine. Actor Alec Baldwin was nearby the march and got into a confrontation with the demonstrators. He had to be escorted by police. At one point, a protester shouted, do you condemn Israel? Baldwin responded, no, but that he wants peace for Gaza. The protests have become a weekly occurrence in New York. Monday's rally followed what has become the now regular route. Beginning at Grand Central Terminal, where officials say about 350 people were gathered earlier in the afternoon, then marching over to the Port Authority and the New York Times headquarters, then moving on to Penn Station. Six Nevada Republicans plead not guilty to charges of fake state 2020 presidential election results. Find out why former Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbro was granted immunity from state prosecution. Young voters at the Conservative American Fest conference in Phoenix share their biggest concerns and who their favorites are after the break. Good to have you back. Some tragic news. At least four people are dead after a violent northeast storm knocked out power, flooded roads, and forced an evacuation. South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maine, and Massachusetts all reported fatalities. The National Weather Service says over five inches of rain fell in parts of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. More than 600,000 power outages were reported from Virginia to Maine. Wind gusts of nearly 70 miles per hour were recorded in southeast New England. 
The Weather Service issued flood warnings for the New York City area, New Jersey and New Hampshire. Although the storm has moved to Canada, its effects still linger. Possible floods may occur across New England before rivers crest. Hundreds of thousands of people await power crews to get services up and running again. People in the southeast are also still reeling from the effects of the storm, which began there last weekend. And today is the final day of Turning Point USA's America Fest 2023 in Phoenix. Young conservatives from across the nation traveled to attend the conference. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what they had to say and some highlights from a few speakers. 17-year-old Lydia Harvey traveled from Texas to attend the conference. She'll be voting for the first time in the 2024 election. I will be voting for President Trump. He already did a wonderful job the first time running the country. He kept all of his promises. Elsa Personette says she grew up in a very liberal state and felt alone in her views. So she really appreciates the networking and connections she can make at AmFest. Meeting people from all over the country that are like-minded in the same political views and values as you. Blaine Hibbert's favorite speaker was Carrie Lake. She's running for the United States Senate here in Arizona and she's going to do a great job. Uh, she's a very passionate uh, individual and she refers to herself as Trump in a dress, so that's, that's pretty cool too. Jessica Gomez feels that modern culture has demonized traditional values. When you have conservative values, a lot of people think that it's hateful and that it's trying to be against them and that it's trying to um, be racist, be homophobic. Gomez is hoping a Republican wins the presidency, saying college students have suffered economic hardship under President Biden. Conservative commentator Tucker Carlson spoke at the event. He said America sits on the cusp of collapse with interest on the debt costing more than defense spending. And when robotics are eliminating entire classes of jobs for working class people, why would you admit illegally tens of millions of people from the poorest countries in the world with no skills? The conservative commentator said the current administration and enablers in the Republican Party are trying to destroy the United States. The people doing evil do not win in the end. They are destroyed by the evil that flows through them. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy also spoke at the event, laying out his plan for election integrity. Single day voting on election day as a national holiday with paper ballots, government issued ID to match the voter file. Political commentator Benny Johnson gave some advice to young men on how to be unshakable. Find a woman, fall in love, get married, have more children than you can afford, have insane amounts of kids. There's nothing the world can do to shake you if you do those simple steps. Turning Point USA is an American nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2012 by Charlie Kirk and Bill Montgomery. It supports conservative politics on high school, college, and university campuses. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Presidential candidates are busy on the campaign trail with the first primaries coming up fast. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was in Nevada yesterday, making her pitch that she's the most electable candidate.
the Iowa caucus is on January 15th. The latest polling there by CBS News shows Haley in third place with 13%. President Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis are in first and second with about 58% and 22%. But a New Hampshire poll, a new one that shows that Haley is closing the gap with Trump. The CBS News YouGov poll has Trump in the lead with 44%, Haley in second with 29%, and DeSantis in third with 11%. The Florida governor was in Iowa on Monday. He campaigned along with his wife in the city of Bettendorf. The two Georgia election workers that won a nearly $150 million verdict against Rudy Giuliani for def defamation last week are suing him again. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss accuse him of continuing to spread lies about them. That's over his allegations of ballot tampering in the 2020 election. The lawsuit seeks a federal injunction barring Giuliani permanently from repeating any defamatory claims about them. Freeman and Shea Moss are pointing to statements they say Giuliani made to the media during the trial and after the verdict. Giuliani maintains everything he said about the mother-daughter duo is true. The former New York mayor is also heading to trial for criminal charges in Georgia. He's pleaded not guilty in the case related to his 2020 election work for former President Trump. Six Nevada Republicans pleaded not guilty yesterday to charges of faking state 2020 presidential election results. Each is charged with one count of forgery and one count of filing a false record. Court filings revealed former Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro was granted immunity in the state for agreeing to testify to a grand jury in Clark County. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on the trial in the swing state. The six Nevada Republican electors that pleaded not guilty Monday were arraigned remotely over their casting of alternate slates of votes for former President Trump during the 2020 presidential elections. The six signed certificates stating Trump won the state in 2020 and sent them to Congress in the National Archives. The votes were ultimately ignored. The defendants are Nevada GOP Chair Michael McDonald, Nevada GOP Vice Chairs James DeGraffenried and Derward Hindle, Clark County GOP Chair Jesse Law, and Douglas County GOP officials Sean Maheen and Eileen Rice. If convicted, they face up to nine years of jail time, with each felony charge bringing penalties from one to four to five years in prison. A trial date is set for March 11th. Trump mentioned the six indicted electors at a rally in Reno this week, saying they were being treated unfairly and suggesting the case was politically motivated. The leading GOP 2024 candidate called it a weaponization of law enforcement for high-level election interference due to his lead in the polls. Meanwhile, court transcripts revealed former Trump campaign lawyer Kenneth Chesbro was granted immunity from prosecution in Nevada for his testimony to a grand jury. Chesbro was first indicted on seven felonies and pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit filing false documents. The attorney has been widely publicized as the architect of an alternate elector scheme after a legal memo he wrote for the Trump campaign was leaked. Chesbro is facing investigations in Nevada, Arizona and Washington regarding the 2020 elections. All rise. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Trump's lawyers are asking the full federal appeals court in Washington to review a gag order in the J6 case. The request yesterday follows a ruling by a three-judge panel that upheld but narrowed a gag order on Trump. Trump's lawyers argue the panel's decision contradicts Supreme Court precedent and rulings from other appeal courts. They want the entire court to take up the matter, saying a fresh evaluation is needed. 
And a federal appeals court has ruled on former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' request to move his Georgia case to federal court. A three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rejected it yesterday, affirming a lower court opinion from September. Hunter Biden is scheduled to make his first court appearance and arraignment in California next month. His court appearance is set for January 11th at the U.S. District Court in the Central District of California. The charges stem from a nine-count grand jury indictment accusing Hunter Biden of three felony and six misdemeanor tax offenses. The indictment alleges he failed to fulfill his tax obligations. Instead, he allegedly spent his money financing an extravagant lifestyle, including drugs, escorts, luxury hotels, exotic cars, and other items totaling over $1 million. The charges say he failed to pay taxes in 2016, 2017, and 2019, and failed to file returns for 2017 and 2018. And up next, Texas taking the reins on immigration, criminalizing illegal border crossings. Why? And will potential legal challenges to this find their way to the Supreme Court? A former immigration judge breaks this down. Marvel actor Jonathan Majors found guilty of assault and harassment. The details of those charges and what it could mean for Majors' career. Thanks for staying with us. About $1,070,000. That's how much money the Defense Department says is left to help Ukraine fight Russia. After that, the White House says the money is gone until lawmakers act. But funding is stalled as Republicans push for action first on the southern border. And an illegal immigrant surge is happening in the midst of Washington's stalemate. Here's more on the story. On Monday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott made it a state crime to enter Texas illegally, giving local law enforcement federal-like immigration power. Senate Bill 3 for more border wall construction is now law in the state of Texas. Abbott, surrounded by supporters, arrived to Brownsville, Texas to protesters who fear the law will lead to racial profiling. We need to respond with a heart and with a better system. The system is strained. U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens tells CNN border authorities apprehended about 192,000 migrants between ports of entry last month. Tucson Sector Chief Patrol Agent says more than 37,000 migrants were stopped there in the first two weeks of December. Our border has been erased. We have no border any longer. While Republican presidential candidates blame President Biden for record high migrant apprehensions, White House and Senate negotiators are trying to work out a border deal. Without that aid to Ukraine, Israel and more is stalled. Monday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which says it had seen a surge in migrants moving by train, temporarily halted railway operations at international crossing bridges in Eagle Pass and El Paso. The Association of American Railroads called for a policy reversal, saying in a statement, every day the border remains closed unleashes a cascade of delay on both sides of the border. Like so much on the border, multiple sides and no easy middle. Here for an update on Texas's new law criminalizing illegal crossings and negotiations in the Senate is Andrew Arthur, a resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Why is it that Texas had to take border enforcement into its own hands with SB4? So 
Texas actually uh, borders Mexico for about 1,254 miles of a 1,954-mile border. So the vast majority of uh, migrants who are the United States cross the Rio Grande in Texas. This has created a huge strain on border communities, towns like Eagle Pass, El Paso, Brownsville. Uh, but it's also had an effect uh, in the interior of Texas, border adjacent towns and all the way to San Antonio, Houston, uh, Austin and Dallas, Fort Worth. So, you know, this is a huge problem. Texas bears the brunt of the Biden administration's border policies. It has been attempting to stem the surge uh, through what's called Operation Lone Star down at the southwest border ever since March of 2021. This next step is necessary in order to give Governor Abbott and uh, state officials the ability to arrest, detain, and attempt to remove those individuals uh, who overwhelmed Border Patrol agents just can't deal with. Right, and now that the state is taking up action, there are Democratic lawmakers and immigration lawyers saying that this law is unconstitutional, won't hold up because the Supreme Court has already ruled that Washington primarily is the one that enforces the border security, not the states. Do you see this happening? You know, it's interesting because the case in question uh, that they rely on is called Arizona versus United States, and that dealt with Arizona enforcing the immigration laws in the interior of the state, Phoenix, Tucson, uh, and further north. This is a bill that deals with trespass into the state of Texas. These are individuals who are coming directly across the border. Uh, so I actually think that Texas is uh, legally on a slightly better footing than Arizona was in that 2012 case, which, by the way, relied upon uh, work that had been done by my organization, the Center for Immigration Studies. But uh, it, it will be an interesting question because you do have a situation in which the federal government has largely ceded control of the border to the cartels on the other side to move migrants and drugs into the United States. That creates a clear and present danger to the state of Texas. Uh, Governor Abbott has already invoked the invasion clause of the Constitution in an attempt to get the federal government to step in unsuccessfully. So I think that this is the next logical step. It's going to have both legal and political ramifications because there will be a political discussion about uh, Texas's actions at the same time that there is a legal one that will eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. Right, and this is a very significant step, raising this illegal crossing now to a Class B misdemeanor, $2,000 fine at most, and they could also see some jail time and also a felony if they're convicted of a prior crime to that. Now, when you say this is going to end up in the Supreme Court, what do you think is going to happen there? It's interesting because Arizona was a very uh, narrowly decided case back in 2012, and the author of that case, uh, Justice Kennedy is no longer on the court. Uh, it is now a very different court. It's a more conservative court. Uh, and it's one that I think is probably going to give Texas a bit of latitude. Whether they're going to give them this much latitude is a different issue. But it's also important to note the fact that Texas has been enforcing criminal law with respect to trespass on public property ever since 2021. This is simply an extension of what uh, Texas was doing uh, for, you know, smugglers and migrants who ended up on private property to apply it to all state property. Well, thank you so much for the analysis on this. Andrew Arthur at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you so much for having me. 
In other news, Marvel actor Jonathan Majors was found guilty on misdemeanor charges stemming from a domestic dispute with his former girlfriend. Majors was convicted yesterday of reckless assault in the third degree, which carries up to a year in jail and a non-criminal charge of harassment. He was acquitted on two similar charges. According to the case, he injured his former girlfriend, Grace Jabari, when she saw a message on his phone sent by another woman. This was last March. Major's lawyers argued that she was acting irrationally at the time and was seeking revenge in the trial. But Jabari's lawyers argued it was part of a pattern of abuse against her. With the verdict, Majors loses some hope of saving his reputation. His sentencing is set for February 6th. Coming up, the state of Tennessee is suing BlackRock over its ESG strategies. Hear what the lawsuit claims the investment firm did. And Apple is pulling some of its Apple watches from the U.S. stores as they deal with a patent dispute. Hear how this could affect the tech giant, especially as we head into the holiday season in just a moment. Good to have you back. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss Tennessee's lawsuit against BlackRock. The state is suing the investment firm in a first-of-its-kind ESG litigation. So, Don, what is Tennessee alleging here? So, the state is uh, claiming that BlackRock has misled the people in the state and that it violated a consumer protection laws. Uh, specifically, they say that uh, BlackRock didn't accurately represent how much environmental, social, and governance factors influence their uh, investment strategies. And now this is for both existing and potential future uh, customers uh, in Tennessee. And Tennessee's attorney general said that BlackRock's inconsistent statements about its investment strategies deprived consumers of making an informed choice. Um, and he said that some public statements from BlackRock actually show uh, a focus on return, meanwhile others show a focus on environmental factors. So they're claiming that this is inconsistent positions here. Uh, so one focusing on money and the other focusing on uh, environmental impacts. And many of the times that you can't really have both. Uh, so Tennessee's lawsuit is a response to what they call BlackRock's conflicting statements. And in addition to that, the lawsuit goes on to claim that BlackRock has downplayed um, the extent to which ESG considerations has driven its investment strategies. Um, so, you know, this is actually, in fact, um, the first legal challenge that accused BlackRock of actually violating consumer prote protection laws. Yeah, and when we talk about downplaying, you remember when Larry Fink, CEO, said that they weren't going to use that term ESG anymore, but it was concerns whether or not this may just be like a rebranding, a repackaging, while not actually changing their investment strategy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, sorry, please, please, you can respond to that. I don't want to cut you off. <laughs> so, yeah, Larry Fink said it was politically driven, uh, that term, so he didn't want to be, be part of that, but you're, you're definitely right. Uh, it could be repackaged in some form or another. So tell us more about Black, BlackRock's um, reaction here to the lawsuit. Yeah, well, of course, BlackRock said uh, they reject the attorney general's uh, claims and will vigorously uh, contest any accusation that BlackRock violated Tennessee's uh, laws, uh, consumer protection laws specifically. Um, and a spokesperson said that uh, 
Contrary to the attorney's claim, attorney general's claims that BlackRock actually fully and uh, accurately disclosed uh, their investment pr practices, um, the, the the firm actually invested around uh, forty billion dollars in the uh, in the state, and in total, that managed over nine trillion at the end of September. Um, and they're saying that they're proud of uh, their contribution and commitment to the future of uh, Tennessee. But over the years, BlackRock has indeed a uh, gotten some back, backlash uh, to their investment strategies for ESG, uh, especially in my view that um, they shouldn't be investing in China because, um, you know, let's not even talk about the human rights issues involved here, but just um, on its own, that should be enough. But in addition to that, China's uh, the world's most uh, worst polluter when it comes to the environment. Um, so, you know, Larry Fink really spearheaded ESG. But it really makes you wonder, like, what part of China uh, does uh, that investment align with ESG, environmental, social, or governance? Certainly a huge question looming all over this. So tell us, what else do you have for us today? Yeah, uh, so Japan's Nippon Steel clinched a deal to, uh, to buy U.S. Steel for $14.9 billion in cash on Monday and prevailing in an auction for the 122-year-old iconic steelmaker. And the deal price of $55 per share uh, represents a 142% premium to August 11, uh, which is the last trading day before rival Cleveland Cliffs unveiled a $35 per share cash and stock bid for U.S. deal. And the outcome is also a blow for our seller, Metal, which uh, Reuters has reported also pursued U.S. steel. And the deal will help Nippon Steel, uh, the world's fourth largest steel maker, move forward significantly, expanding its production in the U.S., where steel prices are expected to rise as automakers ramp up production, production following their recent deals uh, with labor unions. And switching topics, uh, there's another update here when it comes to Apple. It said that it's pausing U.S. sales of its Series 9 and Ultra 2 smartwatches starting this week. Uh, the halt announced yesterday is due to a patent dispute over technology. It enables uh, the blood oxygen feature on the watches. The move comes after an October uh, order from the U.S. International Trade Commission. And the ruling could bar Apple actually from importing its watches after finding the devices violate medical tech company. Maismo's uh, patent rights, models that do not contain the blood oxygen sensors, like Apple's lower-priced SE model, are unaffected by the dispute. Uh, if not vetoed, the ban goes into effect on December 2026. Uh, yeah, those Apple Watches are pretty sophisticated. I hear they can even track your sleep and tell you how much sleep you're getting, even the REM sleep, too. Yeah, I mean, they're always adding new features to the watches. I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes even more advanced than it is now. Yeah. yeah. So what else do you have for us, Todd? Right, uh, just one more update. Uh, Southwest Airlines will pay a $35 million fine as part of a $140 million settlement. This is to resolve a federal investigation into a December 20, uh, 2022 situation last year where the airline canceled thousands of flights and stranded over 2 million holiday travelers. Most of the settlement will actually go toward uh, compensating future passengers. Even before the settlement, uh, Southwest said the meltdown cost more than $1 billion in refunds, reimbursements, extra costs, and lost ticket sales, 
over several months here. And the company promised to give out $90 million in vouchers uh, to future travelers. Yeah, it's a big deal. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says they gave, him, they gave them 140 million reasons not to ever let that happen again. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen this holiday season. Yes. Fingers crossed. All right. Right. Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. Analysis on countermeasures to North Korea's missile campaign as the regime test fires a ballistic capable of hitting the U.S. Defense tactics include U.S. missile interceptors and integrated combat vessels. But what novel idea does South Korea have? An earthquake in China killed over 100 people and injured hundreds more. Hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed. A volcano erupted late on Monday in Iceland's Reykjans Peninsula, spewing lava and smoke across a wide area after weeks of intense earthquake activity. Get that story when we come back. Welcome back. North Korea recently tested an ICBM missile that is reportedly capable of carrying nuclear warheads and reaching any part of the U.S. mainland. I asked John Mills, a retired Army colonel and senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, how this changes the security dynamics in the region. Here's his response. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, these, these are the largest, uh, the Hwasong-18. This is their intercontinental ballistic missile equivalent. And uh, this test fire had several uh, audiences. First was Japan. It, it arced over Japan. Also America, because this could potentially strike America, which is why we have missile interceptors based in Alaska and also on the coast of California to hit these in, uh, potential incoming North Korean missiles. But uh, in the current uh, world dynamic, North Korea is playing an important role as the arms manufacturer for China and Russia in their attempt to topple the United States world leadership. Well, right, when you talk about China's involvement here, they were the ones that were praising this type of launch and deepening ties with North Korea following this when all the countries in the West were issuing their condemnation over this. And of course, the United States and South Korea had just met recently and North Korea pr promised more offensive countermeasures in response to that. So is there anything that the United States isn't doing right now that it should be doing? Well, we have a, a, a number of Aegis-capable ships, uh, uh, Arleigh Burks at 7th Fleet in Yokosuka, and uh, they partner with both the Japanese and the South Korean navies uh, as they uh, for a ballistic missile defense mission. Also, uh, South Korea is rapidly developing and uh, will be putting into operational use uh, what are called floating arsenal ships. So they will have at sea ships ready to fire a lot of ballistic missiles at North Korea uh, to respond to any uh, North Korean attack on the South. So uh, in some ways, uh, North Korea is, is, is upset. In other ways, they're playing their assigned duties flawlessly as key provocateur for China. So North Korea seems to have no respect for the U.N. sanctions that it's violating with these missile launches. Will these arsenal ships that South Korea is deploying and other hardware from the United States serve as a direct deterrent to prevent any catastrophe from happening? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And 
especially if uh, South Korea and even Japan goes even further and develops uh, potentially uh, uh, ballistic missile submarines. So they'd have it not only at sea, but submerged. So uh, detecting and finding these uh, vessels would be quite hard for North Korea. These are a definite deterrent to North Korean uh, recklessness. And they know it, uh, and they don't like it. Uh, but this is uh, uh, South Koreans and Japanese are building up very strong defenses to deter North Korea, who, again, is a key, key uh, partner with China to take down America. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Retired Colonel John Mills and a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. South Korea said earlier today it has started joint special operations exercises with the U.S. It comes as tensions on the Korean peninsula rise after Pyongyang's missile launches. The ministry says the drills, which began yesterday, took place at various special training sites and will last for two weeks. And we're going to switch up gears here and bring you some of the latest headlines from around the world. An earthquake in China killed at least 118 people and injured hundreds more. The 6.2 magnitude tremor jolted a remote and mountainous region in the country's northwest. Authorities have mobilized emergency responders, but rescue work is challenging in the sub-zero temperatures. Most of China is grappling with freezing temperatures after a cold wave swept across the country. More than 155,000 homes in Gansu were either damaged or destroyed. A volcano erupted in Iceland last night near the town of Grindvak. The eruption came also as no surprise as more than 3,000 residents were urged to evacuate last month. Footage from the Icelandic Coast Guard shows magma spewing while the sky turned orange amid smoke clouds. Iceland's meteorological office said the size of the eruption and the speed of the lava flow are many times greater than recent eruptions in the Reykjan Peninsula. Iceland's foreign ministry said there were no disruptions to flights to and from Iceland and international flight corridors remain open. No fatalities have been reported. Just looks like a scene from another planet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we are heading quickly to the second part of our broadcast. We'll be back in a minute, so stay with us. Hi everybody, I'm Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope right here on NTD. Guess what, we've got a special celebration because it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So coming up on NTD, we're going to be celebrating a joyful Christmas and you're all invited to watch as we celebrate Christmas in music and song from around the world. Join us on NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are today's top stories. The U.S. unveils plans to combat a string of attacks on international shipping in the waters near Yemen. This after Houthi terrorists struck again in the Red Sea on two ships at the same time. Chileans voted to reject a conservative constitution as a dictatorship era charter remains the law of the land. We dive into the impact on U.S. and regional politics with the editor-in-chief of the Epic Times Portuguese. At least four people are dead after a northeast storm knocked out power, flooded roads and forced an evacuation. Hear the extent of the damage. 
Two Georgia election workers awarded close to $150 million in damages sue former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani again. Details in the new lawsuit seeking a federal injunction. A business owner tells us why products made in America are so important and the surprising price differences between made in China and made in the USA. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today's Tuesday, December 19th. In today's top news, the U.S. military says Houthi terrorists attacked two ships at the same time in the Red Sea yesterday. One of the attacks was on a commercial oil tanker. U.S. Central Command says it was targeted by a one-way attack drone and an anti-ship ballistic missile launched from Yemen. The other commercial vessel, a bulk cargo ship, reported an explosion in the water nearby. No injuries were reported. Secretary of State Antony Blinken condemned the attacks in a call with Saudi Arabia's foreign minister yesterday. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin also unveiled a new U.S.-led coalition yesterday. The naval operation aims to counter the growing threats in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Canada, the U.K., Italy and France are among the nations joining the security initiative. Austin says the international challenge demands collective action. The defense secretary says some countries will conduct joint patrols and others will provide intelligence support in the region. Oil rose nearly 2% yesterday. Supply costs and delays to the region's maritime trade are rattling investors. Major oil and shipping firms are reacting to the recent attacks in the international trade corridor by pausing or avoiding the route. The IDF just uncovered the largest Hamas tunnel so far in Gaza that is just around 1,000 feet away from the border of Israel's kibbutz Eres. Earlier, I spoke with IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner to learn about its significance and how it was used in the war. It is a massive uh, tunnel network, over four kilometers long, wide enough for a car um, and like 50 meters deep. Um, it goes to show the extent of Hamas's intention to conduct their activities, their terrorist activities from the Gaza Strip in and around the, the border area in order to conduct attacks, in order to launch attacks as they did on the 7th of October. Uh, while I can't confirm that this, that, that this was the case at this stage, uh, we have to work under the assumption that it is exactly that. And what I can say is that we know of at least two other uh, tunnel systems like this, we intend on exposing them, and, and it's part of our operation to dismantle and destroy Hamas, peel back level by level, stage by stage, tunnel by tunnel, uh, the mechanism that Hamas has built. Um, what it actually goes to show, Evelyn, is the extent uh, of their uh, activities, of their intentions. The, 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 the amount of energy and money just goes to show that this is the most expensive expansive construction project ever to exist in the Gaza Strip, not for the benefit of the people of Gaza, but the detriment of the people of Gaza only to serve terrorism. Israel's defense minister was talking about slow, gradually moving to a next phase soon. Uh, is that something you're currently preparing for? Of course, the IDF understands that the level of intensity that is conducting our operations uh, will go down as we move forward and, and close in on Hamas 
and their leadership as we dismantle and destroy their battalions across the Gaza Strip. And we have, uh, and we continue this morning, the operations in Sajaya in the northern Gaza Strip, in Jabalia, in Khan Yunus in the south. Um, that is what is dictating the level of intensity where there is more objection, more terrorists, more where they're deeply, deeper in, embedded in the uh, tunnel system, then it creates a bigger challenge. Of course, that is met by the force of the IDF. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. I appreciate your time as always. Good day. Back to the U.S., at least four people are dead after a violent northeast storm knocked out power, flood, flooded roads, and forced an evacuation. South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maine, and Massachusetts all reported fatalities. The National Weather Service says over five inches of rain fell in parts of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. More than 600,000 power outages were reported from Virginia to Maine. Wind gusts of nearly 70 miles per hour were recorded in southeast New England. The Weather Service issued flood warnings for the New York City area, New Jersey and New Hampshire. Although the storm has moved to Canada, its effects still linger. Possible floods may occur across New England before rivers crest. Hundreds of thousands of people await power crews to get services up and running again. People in the southeast are also still reeling from the effects of the storm, which began there last weekend. The two Georgia election workers that won a nearly $150 million verdict against Rudy Giuliani for defamation last week are suing him again. Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss accuse him of continuing to spread lies about them. That's over his allegations of ballot tampering in the 2020 election. The lawsuit seeks a federal injunction barring Giuliani permanently from repeating any defamatory claims about them. Freeman and Shea Moss are pointing to statements they say Giuliani made to the media during the trial and after the verdict. Giuliani maintains everything he said about the mother-daughter duo is true. The former New York mayor is also heading to trial for criminal charges in Georgia. He's pleaded not guilty in the case related to his 2020 election work for former President Trump. Six Nevada Republicans pleaded not guilty yesterday to charges of faking state 2020 presidential election results. Each is charged with one count of forgery and one count of filing a false record. Court filings revealed former Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro was granted immunity in the state for agreeing to testify to a grand jury in Clark County. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the trial in the swing state. The six Nevada Republican electors that pleaded not guilty Monday were arraigned remotely over their casting of alternate slates of votes for former President Trump during the 2020 presidential elections. The six signed certificates stating Trump won the state in 2020 and sent them to Congress in the National Archives. The votes were ultimately ignored. The defendants are Nevada GOP Chair Michael McDonald, Nevada GOP Vice Chairs James DeGraffenried and Derward Hindle, Clark County GOP Chair Jesse Law, and Douglas County GOP officials Sean Maheen and Eileen Rice. If convicted, they face up to nine years of jail time, with each felony charge bringing penalties from one to four to five years in prison. A trial date is set for March 11th. Trump mentioned the six indicted electors at a rally in Reno this week, saying they were being treated unfairly and suggesting the case was politically motivated. The leading GOP 2024 candidate called it a weaponization of law enforcement for high-level election interference due to his lead in the polls. Meanwhile, court transcripts revealed former Trump campaign lawyer Kenneth Chesbro was granted immunity from prosecution in Nevada for his testimony to a grand jury. 
Chesbro was first indicted on seven felonies and pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit filing false documents. The attorney has been widely publicized as the architect of an alternate elector scheme after a legal memo he wrote for the Trump campaign was leaked. Chesbro is facing investigations in Nevada, Arizona, and Washington regarding the 2020 elections. All rise. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Today is the final day of Turning Point USA's America Fest 2023 in Phoenix. Young conservatives from across the nation traveled to attend the conference. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what they had to say and some highlights from a few speakers. 17-year-old Lydia Harvey traveled from Texas to attend the conference. She'll be voting for the first time in the 2024 election. I will be voting for President Trump. He already did a wonderful job the first time running the country. He kept all of his promises. Elsa Personette says she grew up in a very liberal state and felt alone in her views. So she really appreciates the networking and connections she can make at AmFest. Meeting people from all over the country that are like-minded in the same political views and values as you. Blaine Hibbert's favorite speaker was Carrie Lake. She's running for the United States Senate here in Arizona and she's going to do a great job. Uh, she's a very passionate uh, individual and she refers to herself as Trump in a dress, so that's, that's pretty cool too. Jessica Gomez feels that modern culture has demonized traditional values. When you have conservative values, a lot of people think that it's hateful and that it's trying to be against them and that it's trying to um, be racist, be homophobic. Gomez is hoping a Republican wins the presidency, saying college students have suffered economic hardship under President Biden. Conservative commentator Tucker Carlson spoke at the event. He said America sits on the cusp of collapse with interest on the debt costing more than defense spending. And when robotics are eliminating entire classes of jobs for working class people, why would you admit illegally tens of millions of people from the poorest countries in the world with no skills? The conservative commentator said the current administration and enablers in the Republican Party are trying to destroy the United States. The people doing evil do not win in the end. They are destroyed by the evil that flows through them. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy also spoke at the event, laying out his plan for election integrity. Single day voting on election day as a national holiday with paper ballots, government issued ID to match the voter file. Political commentator Benny Johnson gave some advice to young men on how to be unshakable. Find a woman, fall in love, get married, have more children than you can afford, have insane amounts of kids. There's nothing the world can do to shake you if you do those simple steps. Turning Point USA is an American nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2012 by Charlie Kirk and Bill Montgomery. It supports conservative politics on high school, college, and university campuses. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, we look at the recent rejection of a new conservative constitution in Chile and its impact on regional politics in the U.S. Why are products that are made in America so important? We hear from a business owner who explains the differences in quality and price in just a moment.
Welcome back. We're turning our attention now to South America and how recent developments there affect you. Chileans on Sunday voted to reject a conservative constitution. Voters previously rejected a progressive version in September last year. Because both of these failed, the dictatorship era charter remains the law of the land. So we're going to learn more about the impact of this on the U.S. and regional politics with Marco Schottkes, the editor-in-chief of the Epoch Times Brazil. Welcome again. It's really good to have you this early in the morning. And first of all, I want you to help us understand what the conservative constitution would have done. What, tell us what was the merit of it. So. The whole constitutional process, we have to go back to 2019, that's when huge student protests broke out uh, in Chile and four out of every five Chileans uh, voted for a new constitution. Now, back then, that was a very strong progressive trend, a very strong left-wing trend. So much so that last year, the proposed constitution was a very hard left one. Now, they had two constitutional votes in two consecutive years, both of them were rejected. Now, with this new conservative one, um, that sort of followed the trend throughout the continent, throughout South America or Latin America, that things were shifting right on the grassroots level, even though most of the administrations had gone socialist. What this new charter proposed to do, um, it was not that different from the 1980 charter they currently still have, now that the vote uh, didn't come to fruition, but what it would do is that it would, it would go further right on things like abortion and homeschooling. It would enshrine some rights um, that maybe would be not as guaranteed uh, with what they currently have, and definitely so with the last year's uh, leftist one. Yeah, immigration, abortion, these are all issues that are predominantly in the United States that are being talked about. So what was this dictatorship era, this dictatorship era or charter that was there in place that it sought to replace? So that's also part of why the left uh, wing in Chile seeks so hard to replace the constitution they currently have. It's also symbolic in a sense because their current constitution, uh, it drifts on the conservative side. It is from the 1980s. So that's when Augusto Pinochet Ugarte uh, was in power which is probably the most uh, hardcore, uh, the most authoritarian right-wing leader South America has had back during the 80s. Now, he, got, he even got a reputation for pushing communists out of helicopters as punishment. Of course, we have to remember that Chile had a very violent uh, left-wing movement uh, backed by the Soviet Union in the 70s and that propelled a very, very authoritarian response. So what they currently have uh, is a constitution that uh, does enshrine uh, certain rights, but what it, it's also very controversial because it's amended more than 50 times. So it's also a very controversial text already and, and that they're likely to keep dragging on with and keep amending. So tell us more about this current document that is um, in place. So does it pose uh, challenges to the Chileans? So I think one of the main things we have going on since the 2019 student protests is people were pushing hard for more indigenous rights. Uh, I, I put that in quotes because it's also a very politicized uh, left-wing trend, not only in Chile, but also in my native Brazil, where you try to push for sovereignty of the indigenous people. But what that really ends up doing is taking away the power of the state um, to work on its energy resources, its mineral resources on certain parts of the land. Of course, the rights of indigenous people have to be respected, uh, but there's also, also a component where this gets politicized, there's foreign NGOs, there's a whole broader context here, just too broad to really go into, but it's, it's a delicate issue. Now, also one of the other controversial things it has is the matter of abortion. 
the proposed left-wing text, uh, text from last year, uh, opposed to the one that was rejected this year, um, is really did try to push for more abortion rights. So it's really more social issues, uh, but I don't think it poses a challenge, a, a challenge sorry, to the local people to the point where they would push again for another vote. They had like five or six uh, votes in the past few years, so they're really dragged down by it, yeah. So Marcos, Fitch ratings shows that this inability for Chile to address these social problems with this rejected constitution here shows that their debt to GDP ratio is going to rise up to over 40%. So how would a Chile that's more in debt affect the United States? So uh, Chile is a really key country to the United States uh, on a number of ways. Uh, mostly it's one of the copper producing countries of the region. It's like really in the mining sector. Chile is a powerhouse when you thought um, ion lithium batteries, for instance. Um, a Chile that's more indebted or a Chile that's in economic trouble can pose some challenges. Um, I mean, when you're talking mineral exports uh, and when you're talking um, regional stability up to an extent, but really Chile has been one of the most stable countries in South America. It's one that does better uh, with HDI, the Human Development Index, uh, the UN's measure of human development. So it's, it's really one of the region's most stable and developed countries. And I don't think that would be such a key factor that would, it would disrupt that in any serious sense for the moment. That's mm. good news. Got it. Well, very interesting and always insightful to hear from you, Marcos Schottges, the editor-in-chief of the Epoch Times Brazil. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And what's the difference between Made in America and Made in China? Let's hear what a business owner who specializes in U.S. and U.S.-made products has to say. Joining me now is Mark Andel. He is the owner of the Made in America store. Good morning, Mark. It's really good to see you. I want to start by just asking you, what do you think are the biggest differences that American consumers will actually notice when they are buying something that is made in America as opposed to made in China? Yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, that, that comes up a lot. You know, quality, we always said, you know, we became the throwaway world, United States, but we lead with quality. So usually it's the quality. You can see a good made in America product has top quality. Um, it, you know, it's just finished better, the fit and trim, uh, but it's a much better quality. And, uh, you know, our products it just seem to last longer. So the longevity is there. But you can generally tell, uh, you know, it's funny, our American flag, 50% of them are made overseas. And, you know, if they come from foreign companies or China, they don't even have the right stars on them. But what about, I'm sure you hear it a lot, when people say, you know, but products from China are just cheaper. Yeah, so they're more inexpensive. But it's funny, as we open a store, we're up to 15,100% made in America products. The, the glue, the packaging, all the components. But, it, you know, when you put them side by side, uh, the, the price isn't that different, and uh, people are surprised. You can see the quality difference. So it, it's pretty neat that we've showed people, no, you can still make it in America at a reasonable price and a competitive price. So why is it important, do you think, that there are more consumers in the U.S. that actually buy domestic products? Because, you know, our mission is to create and save quality livelihoods in the United States of America by increasing American manufacturing. That's who we are, our fabric. Uh, you know, if you, you buy a Made in America product or you buy local, you're putting somebody to work. And uh, people need a purpose. They need jobs. And buying products from your own country keeps the money in your country. And it supports uh, everything that we kind of believe in. How hard is it actually nowadays to find products that are actually made in America? 
Yeah, very, you know, it's, it's hard because we have 14,000 plus products, 100% made in our country, but yet we have nothing that plugs in or takes a battery. I tell people we've been at a moon, but we can't make a toaster. Come on, you know, but we've made it easier um, to find the products and, and people trust that we've done the homework for them. So at our brick and mortar stores in West New York or on our website at madeinamericastore.com, we've made it easy for people to find Made in America products, but it's a lot for us to research and get them in our stores. But we're coming a long way and uh, Americans are good inventors and whatnot. So we get a lot of mom and pops with new products that are in our stores and that's pretty neat. We support entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, the inventors also. Hmm. And then of course, Christmas is coming up. Is there anything that you would like to share? What do you have? Yeah, it's up? pretty neat. Yeah, we got a company called Confer Plastics in our backyard in Tonawanda, New York, and uh, they make a new retro racer. So it's a uh, uh, it's a uh, blow molding, and uh, they make a retro racer sled for the kids. They make a funnel. They make a neat little bar uh, table set. So we just brought that into our stores, and I'd love to help the local companies uh, launch their products. So we're really proud to have uh, Confer Plastics products in our store, and that's neat for Christmas too. Get the kids a little retro racer. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Mark Endel. I appreciate your time this morning. Oh, thank you so much. And one note about Christmas, one way to ensure that you're getting a product made in the United States for the most part is to buy a live Christmas tree because the U.S. Commerce Department says that about 90% of artificial trees come from China. Oh, oh, that's a good point. All right. Thank you. Uh, and today's show ends right here. We'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.